Well, welcome to Daily Cyber. My name is Brandon Krieger, and I'd like to thank you for this episode of Daily Cyber. Uh, we're in episode number 235. Uh, today I have Neil Bridges, our expert in cybersecurity. Uh, he's a colleague of mine, and uh, we're going to have a great conversation about what's going on in the cybersecurity industry and just different things that we're, we're working on. So it's going to be really exciting. Uh, grab a coffee, grab a tea, and let's hack at it. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, USADO. USADO is a Canadian-based cybersecurity company that provides 24-7 cybersecurity support and compliance service that align their customers' tolerance for risk, their clients, suppliers, and government contractual mandates. USADO's teams focus on using insights to drive business decisions. There's no need to leave strategies to chance when insights can be used to show what changes need to be made and how to make them. USADO offers multiple services to help companies simplify IT, centralize cybersecurity management, and meet compliance standards. USADO can customize their service to work with your existing IT network and program. For more information, contact USADO at info at uzado.com or visit their website at www.uzado.com. Hey, Neil, how's it going? Awesome, Brandon. Thanks for having me on as usual. Oh, I mean, it's amazing to always have these conversations when it comes to cybersecurity and you just, you know, everything that's going on in the industry. It's 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 ever changing. Like I think we, we learn something new every single time we have one of these conversations. I know it's pretty crazy. Uh just I had a conversation this morning and I was just talking about like the CSSP study group that I'm doing on Tuesdays. And the guy was saying, like, you know, just the evolution of business and technology and laws and regulations and everything that's going on. You just, you always have to keep up. You always have to keep listening to something. I, I know it sounds cliche, but I, I can't, I can't think of a time in this industry, you know, where, where year over year, even month over month, you know, things haven't just changed dramatically and, and changing, you know, you know, how you think about cyber, how you think about business, how you think about, you know, everything it is that we've got going on. And, and I don't, you know, don't just talk just COVID, you know, I think COVID is an extreme example, but, you know, I, I think we, we see so much change in our industry that, you know, you, you can't go a day or a month or a year without something being vastly different than what it was before. I know. Uh, it's just, it's pretty crazy. Like the industry is constantly changing. I know uh, from my uh, position with Usado it's always talking about business first, security second, and the business strategies. And with the pandemic, business has changed. It's it's completely flipped upside down now. I know what you're seeing. It's similar. I mean, I don't think you can, I don't think you can go to a single business, small, medium, large enterprise, and 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 have a conversation with them where they haven't had to change, you know, something cybersecurity related, whether it's about their posture, the technology they implement you know, how they deal with a remote, remote workforce, whatever the case is. I don't think there's a single thing that's, uh, uh, you know, the same, you know, about how they, their operating model this year, you know, versus what it was last year, unless they've, they've, you know, been just that prepared to deal with, you know, this, this type of, of, you know, global issue. And I don't think anyone was, I mean, no, any company that I've talked to so far, I mean, it was a handful, I'd probably say five, like on my hand that were prepared, ready, were able to transfer over. Other than that, the rest was like, they, they scattered like, okay, what do we need to do? Like we have on these roadmap, we have the disaster recovery, we have all that, but now it's stuff that we planned out for one year or now is like one week or even the next 48 hours. 
the panic is real. The panic is real. I mean, I think even what are we, we're six months now into this, seven months now into this. I think, I think people are still panicking, trying to figure out, you know, what it is that they need to do to, to deal with this, even as, as folks are trying to contend with, do, do they go back to work? Do they not go back to work? Whatever the case is. Now, anyone that's watching this, you're going to probably see the chat on, you're going to see it on Facebook. You're going to see it on YouTube uh, as well as I'm, I'm keeping an eye on LinkedIn as well. If you guys have any questions for Neil or myself, just put it in the chat box and I'll make sure that, you know, I'll ask Neil or myself and we'll respond to it. So uh, a lot going on right now, uh, like you said, with the, the the first phase, I'll call it the first wave of the pandemic. Now I'm hearing rumors that we're going to have another wave. What are you hearing? I don't know. It's, it's, it's highly, I'm, I'm starting to, to wonder just, just how far we're going to take this, this pandemic. I, I just got back from a week long vacation in a completely different state, you know, from where I'm at right now and to see, and actually passing through several States, um, you know, seeing how different States are handling, you know, the pandemic just from like a cultural and societal perspective. It's, it's amazing just the vast differences I travel across the country to, to, to see that. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we go through another, another wave, another phase of it. Um, at the same time, it's like you go into some of these, you know, these States. And I was curious myself, I, you know, not, not to turn anything into a political conversation by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, I went to a state here recently where nobody wore a mask at all. You know, it was, it was like, like we, you know, we looked like an outsider, you know, wearing masks inside of, inside of restaurants and things like that. And I go to check their numbers and things like that. And, and they're actually on the downslope. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to really tell, you know, um, you know, when that second, when that second wave is going to hit, I don't think it's a matter of if I look at this very much like a cyber attack, right? It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, right? We're going to get a second wave. When is it going to happen? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to tell, man. I can't, I can't tell. Well, I know the cold and flu season's coming, right? I mean, that's always kind of that fall, winter kind of area where, you know, everyone starts to kind of get the sniffles. The kids are now back into school, right? So even that, you know, kids start to kind of put their germs on all the different things, different surfaces, <laughs> right? Spread that around. That kind of gets from, you know, their kids to their mail, their lunch boxes to their knapsacks and then gets to home, right? And now it kind of goes throughout the family. So it's going to be interesting to see how the next, you know, 60 to 90 days, you know, pans out. Well, and speaking of schools, right, I, I think it's it's been interesting to watch the the news unfold here recently from a cybersecurity perspective as schools have been trying to contend with, you know, getting started back up in a pandemic type of environment first and foremost, but then also the cybersecurity things um, that are happening. And I, hopefully this isn't on your news list for today. I, I may hijack one of your news <laughs> topics, right? But I, I think I saw one of the schools recently um, got Zoom bombed with porn as they were doing uh, a test for some of their distance learning stuff. And it really calls into question what you'd mentioned earlier about, you know, disaster recovery plans and, um, you know, and things like that. And schools, you know, you know, have typically not taken cybersecurity seriously because they believe that their school doesn't affect us, nobody would target us, we don't have the money, insert, you know, litany of excuses here as to why schools don't think cybersecurity is important. Um, when in reality, this is an exact example of how they didn't test it, they didn't prep for it, they didn't talk about the cybersecurity implications of it, and then they get zoom bombed, you know, you know, during you know some of the first try, you know, trials that they're trying to do with with distance learning. Which is interesting. I mean, 
you know, to, to kind of help zoom out here, if, if anyone, the zoom executives or anyone's listening, <laughs> is, they are, you know, you're hearing a lot of, you know, great things that they're doing. They're implementing two factor authentication. They're, enter, uh, they're also getting, you know, uh, you have to validate yourself before you go into any zoom rooms out and all the security is starting to be implemented. You have to use it. Don't get me wrong. Right. Cause I know even for me, when I've used zoom meetings now, there's a, you know, the password that's been sent out. If you set up a room properly, then there's actually, you have to, uh, approve the person to come in actually into the actual Zoom meeting now. So there's layers now of security. So someone's getting Zoom bombed now. You know, maybe it's the the level of security that they're implementing and they're not following kind of the steps that Zoom has actually now established. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, there's, you know, let's call spade a spade for a second though, right? Because there's a difference between, hey, you know, Zoom has established you know, these security settings versus having an organization that has the wherewithal, um, the knowledge, you know, the, the skill set on site to be able to turn around and say, well, yeah, we, we've implemented that correctly, or we know how to use these settings, or we even know how to use this tool. Um, that's where I think that the, the lack of having, you know, qualified cybersecurity advice in most organizations, I think that that's oftentimes overlooked is people go, well, I've got antivirus. Right. So I don't need a cybersecurity person because I've got antivirus. Zoom has given me cybersecurity controls. So therefore I don't need a cybersecurity guy because I've been given the controls. I think we've, I think companies have created this mindset not to bash Zoom by any stretch of the imagination, whereby they say, well, we've implemented the controls. If, you know, the organizations have failed to implement them, then that's on those organizations. But then you look at an organization like a school, are you really going to tell school, you know, hey, if you fail to implement a cybersecurity control to prevent your school from getting zoom bombed with porn, you know, do you, are you really comfortable going to bed at night saying, well, screw that school. We gave them the cybersecurity control. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, like does, does anybody feel comfortable about that conversation? I don't think, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Like no one, any educational institution. I mean, I used to work for a college uh, doing marketing Anytime they get compromised, it's the it's an actual moral, you know, decision where you're like, I want to do my best for them because they're trying to protect the students. They're trying to do all that, even though maybe uh, the due diligence, due care, you know, <laughs> negligence is very high. In, in some some situations, you're like, you got to do it. And, and when you, as cybersecurity professionals yeah. and you're advising them and you, you want them to implement these security measures. But sometimes, like you said. They're like, yeah, we're a small school. Who's going to come after us, right? You know, and I know the discussion I've seen also is we have insurance. We have other things, you know, transference of liability. Someone else is looking after it, not us, right? And, well, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't know what's going on. Shameless, shameless, shameless plug for my business. I know I'm not the only one out there that does this, but, you know, I know there's other, other businesses that do this, but, you know, you know, I give free cybersecurity counseling and advice to, to nonprofits and educational organizations and veteran owned businesses, because I hate that argument about how we're too small. We, you know, we can't afford cybersecurity and, and I've been, I'm been pretty, you know, pretty, pretty consistent with like, if you're a nonprofit or if you're an educational organization or if you're a veteran owned organization and reach out to me, I'll, I'll sit on the phone with you. I'll help you out as much as I can. You know, it's, you know that's, that's time that I freely give away to folks to do it because I, I hate that excuse. Yeah. And same here. I mean, uh, through my calls, through, you know, reaching out to companies, if it's a small company and I can give some recommendations and advice, I'll do it. I'll give them, you know, steps, 
things to think about, you know, even resources that they can kind of go check out. Like if even it's as simple as check out this white paper, check out this other resource that will give you some instructions on how to do this. Right. And then if you have any other questions, come back to me, let me know, because for me, it's better that they're at least secure to a certain state. than they're just kind of going, well, we're too small. We're just going to, you know, transfer it to something else to, you know, that be it, you know, other resources, other business development, whatever that may be. And if, and if it comes up or if it happens, then we'll worry about it then. And you know, as well as I, when that does, then the house is burning. It's not, Oh, you know, we've been hacked. It's, Oh my God, why weren't you in yesterday? That's right. That's right. And, and you're now busy trying to do damage control, liability transfer and, you know, remediation all at the same time. And then you, as you know, like it, the cost of that now goes through the roof, right? When maybe there was a, a remediation step or something you had to do, maybe it would be, you know, five thousand, ten thousand dollars, whatever. But now they've got compromise and now it's fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars for remediation because now you have to have consultants. Now you have to have forensics. Now you have to have your church that gets involved and now you have to have lawyers maybe right. like it's add on, add on, add on, add on. Now it's like, oh my God, I can't believe it, right? And then some, like you were talking about before, some states have, or actually I was talking about another colleague, I think it was, that some states have different uh, cybersecurity laws. So depending on what state you're in in the United States, this could be, you know, you might have to have fees and and penalties that you have to pay as well. I've done, um, I've I've been part of um, those exact type of, of, breaches and incidents before in the past. And, and yeah, I mean, you, you, I'll give you an example of when I was part of a um, credit card breach for an organization that had hundreds of thousands of credit card data that was compromised. And yeah, I mean, it was, you know, we spent more on legal and marketing, you know, not for damage control as much as it was trying to figure out what the different regulations were in the different States so that we knew how to handle what the right response action was with each of the different states, who we had to notify, how we had to notify them, you know, and things like that. And that's, I think that's, that's why SMBs and, and mid and mid market companies rely so heavily on cyber insurance. And I think now this is my opinion. And it's kind of funny. You're talking about that. We're going to go into an article that's actually talking about ransomware and cybersecurity insurance. But I think the penalty or the fault in that is that it's not, it's not a sense of, a defense mechanism, something that's going to prevent. It's something in case of that helps you kind of give you uh, a financial support, right? And then be so that you can start to work on it. It's not something like I have insurance now. I'm covered. I'm protected. It's no. If you have insurance, because if anything happens, there's a financial injection from the insurance company to help you get remediation. It's not a defensive mechanism that's going to prevent it. I think that that's all, I think that's all well and good in theory, but I mean, you know, you drive your car with insurance. Do you, do you ask this rhetorically, obviously, right? Do you follow the speed limit because you're not worried about getting into an accident because you have car insurance to, to protect your car? You know, you don't really worry about whether you, you know, hit that road debris or not because you got car insurance and, you know, it'll protect it. And so I think, I think there's a little bit of that. You said it best, you know, transference of liability. And I had General Williams on the stream, you know, a couple of week, weeks ago, and and he was very big on, um, you know, most of the problems that we see is because of of how we've allowed organizations to transfer liability, move liability around, or, you know, otherwise, you know, reduce their risk in such a way that that they don't need to spend the money on cybersecurity controls. Right, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. When you, we talk about reducing the risk, is it really reducing the risk, or is it just kind of putting it under the carpet until it happens, like hiding it under something I think, else. I think that's a cynical way to look at it. Not that I don't think that that 
that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I think that there's definitely organizations that try to reduce risk by pretending like it doesn't exist. Um, I worked for a financial organization one time, separate from the PCI issue I just mentioned, um, where they actually did, and they were a victim of a one of the largest um, ATM scam breaches this was back in the mid 2000s. Um, and when they looked at the money that they had spent to build a cybersecurity program, and they looked at the money that they had spent on legal and regulatory stuff with the FFIC, I think that they had come to the conclusion that it was actually fiscally cheaper for them to just deal with it financially. And having never spent the hundreds of millions of dollars that they did to build a cybersecurity organization, um, it was cheaper for them to just, uh, you know, pay all the fines and everything else that they needed to do, um, which begs kind of a question in terms of, of how do we see the fiscal responsibility for organizations when it comes to handling their, their risk mitigation strategies. And, and I think that you cynically say putting it under the rug, I would challenge and say, is it, you know, just for the sake of argument, not that I believe this stance whatsoever, but um, you know, are people burying it under the rug or are they simply saying we've decided to mitigate this risk by accepting the financial responsibility that could come from any particular, you know, lawsuit or something like that, that could happen from it. Hmm. I'm just trying to think like, so mitigating the risk in that way. So if they get breached and I'm just kind of using the devil's advocate here, if they get breached, my data as a user is there. So now they're just going to pay out. But now what about my identity? What about my, you know, anything along that line. Now it's it's out there. Say and just say there's PII information with the company. They've got my first name, last name, uh, mailing address, maybe even my credit card information because I bought something through them. And now that's been hacked, and now it's on the dark web. But now they're going to pay me. You know, you know whatever that may be, seventy five dollars per record, one hundred fifty dollars per record. That's been compromised, right? But now it's out there. Is that really a way for strategy just to kind of protect my data? Is that we're just going to pay you know, for mitigation out here? You, you, you get it. But you're, 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 you're asking that from, you know, from the perspective of a, of a data consumer, you know, of a consumer of these businesses. And I would challenge folks to put on, you know, the, the, the hat that they don't like to put on, right. Which is, you know, if you're, if you're a CEO or if you're a board member, right. Of a, of a company, you know, the user is stupid. And, and I don't say that from like a, um, you know, ha ha ha, the user stupid perspective, but we've talked ad nauseum, Brandon, you and I over numerous conversations about how we have an uneducated, um, um, uh, you know, you know, society when it comes to cybersecurity, you know, they think antivirus is, is okay. They think, you know, the commercials for Norton, you know, LifeLock, uh, you know, and NordVPN are the, the keys to, to solving all the problems in the world. And as long as I've got my credit monitoring in place, then, you know, who cares who's got my social security number out there? I've got LifeLock to, to keep me secure and things like that. And I think, I think CEOs and board members and businesses have uh, taken advantage of that, you know, ignorance, probably stupidity is a bad word on my part and apologize to all the folks who are listening for that. But I think ignorance is, is probably a better word for it where they're okay taking advantage of society's ignorance and simply saying, well, you know, they don't understand the difference between credit monitoring. So yes, you know, who cares that your data got sold on the dark net for, you know, $150, $200 a record. I, as a CEO of a company can pay, $5 a person and pay for your credit monitoring service for the next five years. And that's still fiscally cheaper than the hundreds of millions of dollars that I would put into my cybersecurity organization to 
force multi-factor authentication to, you know, pay an identity and access management organization to actually have the proper identity and access management controls to pay a security organization, pay a security operations center to have, you know, a, a big box SIM like Splunk with a big box EDR like Carbon Black or something like that. Um, you know, I think, I think most CEOs would look at that and say, hmm, five to $10 per person, you know, that I can pay to, you know, fiscally mitigate my cybersecurity incident versus the hundreds of millions of dollars that I would pay to technologically mitigate my cybersecurity incident. I think that becomes a really hard conversation at the CEO and the board level. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause it was funny that you brought up a point and I was having a conversation with a bank. Uh, it was uh, an, an agent uh, of the bank. It was on Wednesday and we were just kind of, kind of talking about uh, breaches and things along that line. They said, "Oh yeah, you can get your credit, uh, your like Equifax or TransUnion to set up credit alerts." And I and I shared in a scenario that I had with a, another colleague where they did that. They had the identity alerts and a theft, you know, with Equifax, and they went to a car dealership to test it out. So the car dealership actually sent out, you know, a credit alert just to see, you know, if this is the person was validated and all that. And that individual, my colleague, was supposed to get phone calls to say someone's checking out your credit just to let you know they're at this place, this place, this location. Is that you? Right. To validate it. They never got a call. And that's that's my point is, is if you if you're not in that position to test it. If you're like, cool, I'm going to get this call. Thank you very much, Equifax. And you're just sitting at home in your recliner, like watching TV, like, Hey, I don't have to worry about cybersecurity because Equifax is going to call me if my identity ever gets breached. We, we, as people have made it okay to, you know, we're going to, that'll be in the, being the theme of the, the stream today, I think is, is transferring liability is we've allowed society to transfer that liability over to Equifax. that says, well, Equifax is taking care of my credit. I don't have to pay attention to it. So therefore I'm right. safe. Right. You know, I, I, I don't think that we, if we look at what we do as a, as a human race, we don't transfer liability of the protection of our home to the police, right? We don't call the police to proactively protect our home, right? We call the police in response when there's something wrong. We proactively protect our home by putting locks on the doors, locks on the windows. You know, if you're in a country or state that allows you to own a gun, you know, you own a gun to proactively protect your house, right? You may have mm -hmm. a dog, right? To proactively protect your house. Um, you know, there's very few scenarios where we allow such a gross transfer of, of liability as a human race that I think we've allowed corporations to convince us that it's okay to transfer that liability and not to worry about it. And we've ultimately transferred that reliability away from the user and even away from some of the big box, especially in the financial sector. It's particularly worse in the financial sector where we've transferred that liability away from the finance industry and over to somebody else. You know, I think that's important to have that conversation too is uh, social responsibility and responsibility of your technology and your identity, all, all of those, right? It's like, you know, what people, more people are doing when it comes to health, health and wellness, right? People now are taking more responsibility of their health by going to the gym, eating properly, kind of exercising, reducing their stress, doing all that. When it comes to technology, Absolutely. there's no difference. You know, you know, even on the user base, employee, having that social responsibility saying, is this secure? You know, and asking those tough questions of your organization. You know, you know, how can we test it? You know, do I need to take cybersecurity awareness training? You know, can I tra have training for now because of remote users for myself and my family? Right, because everyone's on the, the home network. I want to make sure everyone's educated to what to do and what not to do on the home network. Because 
I don't want to be held responsible if, you know, little Jimmy, you know, clicks on a banner and also there's malware on the network and it goes through the VPN and goes right into the, the corporation, right? And then to the cloud solution, the file server, whatever that may be. So I think it comes down to looking at that as a holistic view, you know, top down, bottom up approach that everyone now is taking responsibility, not just the corporations that, you know, have this has a certain policy or process or procedure that they're now, you know, in, in influencing cybersecurity of how it's supposed to be implemented it should be the employees also going it you know do we have cybersecurity are we protected you know and asking those questions and how can i as an employee help the company so so it's it's that's an interesting thread to pull on i think i feel like we could get into a huge rabbit hole with this one so, so you may have to just make sure we don't deviate too far from from your topics for today but um a couple streams back um can't remember who it was we talked about. Oh, was, we were talking about we were talking about board. We were talking about having cybersecurity folks on the board, and the lack of having cybersecurity folks on the board. We saw an interesting move this last week. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be talking about this on, you know, with a couple of folks that are, you know, that are going to come on my show this week as well. As we saw General Alexander, former retired General Alexander, join the uh, Amazon board of directors. And for those who who don't know, right, General Alexander was the U.S. Cyber Command uh, four-star general. Um, it was also the director of the National Security Agency. During my tenure in the United States Air Force, he ran all of the, basically the cyber spy or, you know, spy organizations and, uh, and, and whatnot, you know, all of our offensive operations and things like that while I was in the Air Force, um, you know, working for, for that mission. Um, now you've got a guy who's got that type of background. He, he's synonymous with cybersecurity. He's spoken at Black Hat. He's given keynotes at Black Hat. He, you know, runs his own cybersecurity company now. And now he's sitting on the board of directors for, you know, for, for a company like Amazon. Um, it's a very similar problem that we had in the, in the military where now you've, you know, you've got your first non, you know, if you will, CEO, you know, Granny's a CEO of his own company, but he's not like a Jeff Bezos or a, you know, a, a Steve Jobs or somebody like that, who's, who's traditionally very business savvy, very business mindset. You got a guy who's born in cyber. He's, he's grown up in cyber. He's built some of the greatest cyber capabilities, but now he's sitting on the board of, you know, the largest company in the United States of America. Um, you know, I think that's a sign, hopefully, or at least I think I can speak for a large predominance of community that that's a sign, hopefully in the right direction that we're going to start to see more cyber focused people, um, sitting on board of director seats. Cause I think that that's how we make businesses more accountable by having cybersecurity folks sitting on board of directors that say, actually, that's not a good control or that's not a good risk mitigation, or that's not a good liability transfer, you know, um, um, you know, uh, you know, type of type of activity. And so therefore we should do something differently, or at least that's, that's what I imagine the hope is. Well, I think it is. And like you're saying, I mean, it's so important right now to kind of look at Who's in the uh, the place like in the positions on, on the top level, like you're saying, to be able to implement the security, you know, programs, the the roadmaps, the you know forecasting, and doing that to make sure every aspect is thought about and really have that in depth look, right, that holistic look on it. All right. So I think it's, yeah, it's important. It's important to hear kind of these, these successes where now, like you said, they're starting to become on the C-suite level and that executive level that now they're having more deeper conversations. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm seeing it more and more. Uh, one thing we talked about on the CISSB study group was, you know, you, it, this used to be the fact where the CISO used to sit underneath the CIO. Right. So there could be a conflict there of, you know, implementing security because I, like IT comes first before security. 
right? Especially because IT is, you know, building the business, you know, cybersecurity can be a cost center, right? So, you know, you're looking at, you know, your technologies and solutions that are building the business, bringing profit in while security is locking things down and potentially in certain mindsets is hindering the business. I think um, I, it's funny you bring that up. I still see more organizations go the CIO CISO route than I see anything else. And it, it, it floors me when I have these conversations and, and, you know, if you're, I've seen new CISOs who don't really care. They're just like, whatever, I'm a CISO, give me the title and and I'll go do my job. I've, I've, I've hit, I've hit the pinnacle of my career with being a CISO, but then they go to that first board meeting and um, they have to tell the board of directors all the things that the CIO is doing wrong from an IT perspective, knowing that at the end of the year, it's the CIO who's going to do their performance review, not right. the board. And so I think that's that moment that they have that, oh, shoot, this really is a conflict of interest to have me report to the CIO because I'm not going to wrap my boss out to the board knowing that he's going to affect my performance review and my bonus at the end of the right. year. Um, you know, and so I, I still think that, I still don't, still don't think culturally, organizations have adopted the right mindset about where a CISO sits in an organization right. to affect change. Right. And I think it's, it's a slow progress, right. To understand that, you know, security should sit on its own, right. It should have its own kind of process, its own kind of area where it's the C, the CISO reports to the CEO and the board of directors, right. That's kind of where, you know, I see it. And then from that aspect is, you know, they have direct access that this is what we need to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that, it's a whole holistic view of you got your CFO, you got your CISO, you got your, you know, HR operations, COO, like all that C-suite has to understand not only the security measures and, and implementations, but also, you know, agree to what's going to be implemented. It's not just the CISO going in there with his, you know, white knight shining armor and go, we need to implement that. And everyone goes, oh, my God, you're the greatest. Yes, let's implement this. Right. I, I I guess I, I don't necessarily agree that the CISO has to report to the CEO. Okay. I, I think I think CISO reporting to the CFO is actually a really smart decision because the CFO, you know, controlling all of those finances, you know, can look across an organization and I'm trying to make this as obscure example as possible so that if anybody's listening who knows me from some of these previous organizations, I don't rat any of them out. Um, if you've got a business leader of a division somewhere that says that they can't implement cybersecurity controls on their manufacturing site because it's too much work, it's too much headache, it'll decrease their bottom line, um, whatever the case is, that is a business decision. Cybersecurity is a business decision and the business decision should be made by the CFO from a financial decision to say, well, I think we need to invest in cybersecurity in the manufacturing sites, or I need, think we need to accept the financial risk of a manufacturing site going down because of a lack of cybersecurity controls. I think that fiscal responsibility lies with the CFO. I think the C- CEO can make it too, but I think in some of these larger multi-billion dollar organizations in the Fortune 500 Fortune 100 space, I think you'll have a hard time conveying that to a CEO, but I think if you explain it in dollars and cents appropriately to the CFO, then I think that that's acceptable. And then you've got, you know, at least in that conversation, when you go to the board, um, the CFO can say, 
yes, we made a fiscal decision not to fund cybersecurity in this area because here's what it would do to shareholder value. Here's what it would do to the bottom line. Here's what it would do to our EBITDA, you know, and everything else like that. And he could speak at a level that makes sense to, to the board of directors as to why they didn't fund cybersecurity, which I don't think a CIO can do during those board of director meetings. Okay. That makes sense, yeah, because it's more of a business decision, right? Exactly. No, exactly. it totally makes sense. Now, talking about business decisions, I'm going to bring us into the news right now. Uh, and something that's really interesting, uh, we kind of talked about that was, you know, the ransomware attacks, right? We briefly brought that up. And one of the, one of the articles I was reading today was uh, the ransomware attacks, the major cause of cyber insurance claims in H1 2020. So what, what's your thoughts on, you know, how the increase since the pandemic started with the ransomware and ransomware attacks? I, I think it's it's blatantly obvious how much the increases have happened since since uh, the pandemic has happened. I, I talk about it constantly with with the guest on my stream. You know, you know about you know ransomware was a, a I think a two billion dollar industry. I, I need somebody to fact check me on this one. But I think ransomware is a two billion dollar industry last year or the year before. I think it's a twenty billion dollar industry. Um, you know, this year I think they've officially said that um, cybercrime as a whole, but ransomware solely is actually more profitable than the drug trade now. And so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think without a doubt, ransomware has um, um, blown up. I think one of the interesting conversations that I have with folks when I talk to them is, you know, are we, are we seeing more publicity around cyber insurance? Um, not cyber insurance, but ransomware because of cyber insurance and because ransomware extortionists know that the more visibility they get on some of these ransomware cases, the more likely those organizations are to pay. Um, you know, do I think Garmin would have paid if, you know, the ransomware organization hadn't posted all of their stuff online? I think that that's hard to tell. Um, you know, but I think it's it's worth having the conversation about that. Did Did cyber insurance create a more visible model in terms of how much ransomware is happening out there. Okay. Like I'm reading this article right now, and the severity of ransom attacks increased by 47% with a 100% spike from 2019 to uh, to Q1 2020. And then lower down, you can kind of see they have a little bit of a chart here, which says most common uh, cybersecurity incidents percent of report claims ransomware is 41%, fund transfer fraud, 27%, email compromise, 19 and then others. So it's really interesting to see how ransomware now has increased and been kind of one of the main, you know, attack methods for, you know, hackers to compromise people and companies as well. And, and this is what I'm talking about. I think if you scroll down a little bit more to, to that most common cyber incidents percentage reported claims, I think if you were to look at previous years, you know, specifically last year in 2018, so, so fund transfer fraud, I would probably say that, that that's probably referring to like business email compromise. Um, yeah, see, there it is right there. Yeah, business email compromise uh, incidents, right? Um, uh, I think if you were to look at previous years, you would actually see that BEC was actually one of the more prevalent um, uh, cyber insurance claims um, just in, in previous attacks than, than ransomware was. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think we see the rise of, of a, you know, ransomware extortion games. I had some had a, a very nice lady from CrowdStrike on the stream, you know, a couple months ago. And she said that from their perspective, from a, from a threat intelligence perspective, they're just seeing this massive blow up of e-crime specifically around the, uh, um, you know, the ransomware extortion, you know, area. And I think that's, I think that's why we see ransomware starting to take over. I think they know, I think it's also, if we look at it from an insurance perspective and 
my I only preface to say I'm not an insurance expert, but I have sat with folks at Lloyd's and Aon. I've written articles on cyber insurance in the past after my dealings with cyber insurance at a Fortune 100 company. Um, I think I think hackers have learned that um, you know you can say I want four million dollars of ransom for this company, and it's X percentage of their net revenue or, you know, it's underneath a certain threshold or something like that. And they're like, you know, they're probably going to be pretty likely to pay that. It's not going to affect their bottom line. They're not going to have to report to their shareholders. If anything, they'll either take it out of pocket or they'll ask their cyber insurance company to, to pay for it. And I think that's why you're starting to see it is because they know that cyber insurance has become such a thing that they're just going to, they're going to continue to pay and perpetuate it. So I have a question for you. So if that's the case, um, and I mean, you have a relationship with insurance companies. Isn't there going to be a threshold where they're going to stop paying? No, no. What, what the insurance? What I think the insurance industry is struggling with is determining likelihood, right? If you look at a car accident, or if you look at cars, right? I don't know if it's the same in Canada. I'll make, make a couple of assumptions here, so don't don't crucify me if my assumptions are wrong, right? But when you call up an insurance company, they say, "Well, what car do you drive?" how far away are you, know, are you from work? How often do you drive to work? And then they use that to determine how many miles you drive a year. And they've got these fancy calculators that say, well, if you drive 15,000 miles a year, then you're XXX percentage likely to have an accident, you know, based on the amount of time that you're on the road. And that's what they base your insurance premiums off of. I think that insurance companies prior to 2019, 2020 have struggled with what's the likelihood that somebody's going to have a cyber attack. Um, I think if anything, the increase of cyber insurance claims gives insurance companies more data with which they can then hopefully determine some formula to determine likelihood, which means that once they can determine likelihood, then you'll start to see a massive shift in premiums and underwriters um, and claim payouts and things like that. Um, with, outside of the, the Mondelez Zurich lawsuit, there are very few cases that I've seen of cyber insurers actually denying claims, um, despite obviously if ransomware was to get into an organization and infect an organization, there was some vulnerability somewhere, which would imply that the cyber insurance should follow a you know case where it was the company's fault to get infected, but cyber insurance companies are still paying it out. So it still shows that the cyber insurance companies are bringing in more money than their payout ratio, which is how they make their their profits anyway. Um, and, and so as a result of that, I think as long as that continues, I, I think I think we'll continue to see cyber insurance be a thing. Yeah. No, that, make, that makes sense. I mean, I was just wondering because I, from what I've heard, you know, and I, and I get this on the other side is that for the insurance companies, there's only so much they can pay out, right? If, you know, a large percentage of companies, I mean, you look at the increase, right? The 41%, more and more companies are getting compromised and going back to insurance and saying, well, we need you to pay out fifty thousand dollars to you know millions of dollars each time we got ransomware i i would assume right the insurance company now would start to kind of lock that down and have better protocols restrictions that do you have you know is your antivirus your anti-mal your import protection is your firewalls is everything up to date like has it been managed properly do you have you know internal security person that where's the audit where's the logs like all these things now have to be met for them now to pay out I, I, I take, like I said, this is where my cynicism kind of comes into play, right? Because I've, I've been in those conversations and I've had to answer those questions and I've had to stand in front of, um, so, so organizations that I've been a part of, you know, we, we sat in a room with 40 underwriters because our cyber insurance policy was so big that we had to have 40 different companies underwrite our policy because of how much we were being insured for. 
so like, you know, you may have an Aon or a Lloyd's that's acting as a broker for several insurers that are underwriting your policy. Um, if you've got, you know, a $500 million policy, right. Um, but you get it with a $4 million ransomware that may only impact one of your underwriters, right. Or they may take a percent, a percentage of your claim from all of those underwriters. That's still a drop in the bucket compared to what it is that you or any of those other companies are paying out on a, on a monthly slash yearly basis for your cyber insurance policy as a whole. So no, I, I think, I don't think we're anywhere close to that threshold. And I think on top of that, the questions you mentioned, I, I think that it's a pipe dream because I've, again, I've sat in those rooms and I've been asked those questions. Um, and, and I think that organizations are no more equipped to answer those questions for cyber insurers than they are for the auditors or for the big four, whenever one of the big four comes in to do a maturity assessment or, you know, anything like that, than they are, you know, you know, to ask those questions or are capable of understanding those responses when it comes to, to, to cyber insurance. As a matter of fact, I think cyber insurance is still so new to, to, to this business, if you will. Um, they don't have the resources, you know, they don't have the cyber expertise inside of their staff to be able to understand when an organization is lying to them, not lying to them, or, you know, how to interpret the results of a cyber insurance organization is telling them during those interviews. So no, I, I, I think that those questions are all valid, but I don't think a cyber insurance company um, at any level is, is prepared to not alone ask those questions, but understand the results enough to provide, provide any type of meaningful underwriting capability to a company. Do you think that's going to change? I hope it changes just through natural maturity. You know, I, I think I have, a, I have a cynical and a not cynical approach to that. I think I think it should change. I think we we need to see it change. Um, do I think it's going to change? Dear God, I hope so. God, I hope I hope organizations get smarter. I hope we see more cybersecurity expertise getting into some of these business decisions. I hope that we see. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for I'm waiting for the time that you know somebody like Mays or Reeve says you know, you know, we've got ransomware on Tesla, right. Or somewhere else big like that. You know, we've asked for a $5 million ransom and cyber insurance company comes back and says, we're not paying this ransom because obviously you had RDP open to the internet with password one, two, three that allowed an attacker to get in there and put ransomware on there. That's just dumb cybersecurity. And so we're not paying that ransom. I think that's a change that we'll see in the industry. I think as long as we continue to pay our ransoms, I, I think it's a, self-eating snake no which is good i mean I, and i think that's why i wanted to have a little bit of that conversation when especially comes around with the ransomware and the insurance is that you know i think both sides of the coin the insurance companies need to start to implement stricter auditing policies and then like you said maybe even the auditors now have to be you know trained and, and educated on cybersecurity. so when it's a cybersecurity breach they have to have a cybersecurity expert that is an auditor right kind of a unicorn that can do both now and have those tough conversations and, and understand the information that's being, you know, you know, provided by the organization that, you know, yes, we have a firewall and they can say, okay, well, which one is it Fortinet? Is it, you know, Palo Alto? And you know, what, what version is it? And they can do that audit to make sure where they're at. Is it, you know, is it a 10 year old firewall that hasn't been updated and patched in, you know, 10 years since they got installed or have they been maintaining and managing it? Right. And have a care and feed. So, I think we need to get to that point that will help companies now implement stricter security policies and understand that insurance is not just, you know, a fail safe that, you know, we have insurance, we're fine. No, we have to make sure we meet certain measures 
to make sure we maintain that insurance. And when something happens, we have to be at a certain level of you know, maturity to be able to get the insurance claim and be able to support us. Yeah, I think I, I have such a cynical view on insurance. Um, I, I guess I, I still, you know, we, if you, if you deny a claim, people are going to ask you what's the point of having cyber insurance if you're going to deny a claim. If you're going to give every claim, if you're going to pay every claim, then what's the incentive for people to, you know, be safe, right, out there? And, and I think that that's the balance that the cyber insurance industry as a whole is struggling with, is there is a lot of money to be made in cyber insurance. I totally agree with the business decision to get into cyber insurance. I think there's a crap ton of money to be made in cyber insurance. I don't think that the industry is mature enough to understand what their role is in either A, not facilitating cyber attacks, um, or B, facilitating organizations to not implement the appropriate security right. controls. It's a lot of work, a lot of work to do, right? It's, I mean, we still, we're still growing as an industry, and this is why it's good to have these kind of conversations to kind of share, you know, what, you know, some different ideas and really different strategies to kind of on both sides is one, not just for the insurance company, but for the companies to look at how to protect themselves and the insurance companies of how to implement stronger policies and uh, stronger auditing so that everyone is now protected. It's not just one or the other. Yeah. Now, now the next article I was looking at today was uh, the five practical steps to implementing zero trust networks. So I actually wanted to get your, your, your feedback on this, you know, is there really a zero trust network? Is it like 100% secure? Is anything really 100% secure? I mean, I get asked that constantly. I, I, and I've, and I've, I wouldn't call it arguments, heated debates with lots of, of friends and peers in the industry over anything zero trust related. Um, I'm really, really cynical on zero trust. I don't think, I don't think zero trust in the way that it's written, um, facilitates good business. I don't think, I don't think a business can run in a zero trust environment. And I know there's going to be a lot of purists out there that disagree with me. I'm, 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 I'm poised and ready to, to accept that, that critique and, and criticism. But, you know, I think, I think cybersecurity folks want to want to believe in zero trust because it has a cool name like zero trust. And if they zero trust everybody, then absolutely, I'm very secure. But I think when you start looking at how to build it, um, you know, you can find pockets of scenarios where zero trust works. Um, but I think when you look at 100 old organ, hundred year old organizations, if you look at complex organizations that have done thousands, if not more MNAs over the last 20 or 30 years, um, where it's, you know, one company that's made up of 50 smaller companies that they bought over the years. Um, when you look at just the technological debt that I would say almost any company that you know, has been around for five to 10 years, right, has had, I think, I think it becomes statistically improbable to get to a true zero trust model. So now I'm kind of reading through this article and they're talking about like identifying and segmented data, mapping the traffic flow of, of your sense of data and associate them to your business applications, architecting the network, which you just kind of talked about, right? Monitoring. And then the last one is automate and orchestrate. So through these steps, right? Identifying segment, segmenting the data, 
is that really that secure? Like, I mean, I understand it's a, it's a, a remedial or a, a step to isolate the data and try to, you know, separate from the you know, other network and so forth. But, you know, you being, you know, the expert you are and being in the industry, isn't only time, isn't only time before you kind of figure it out? Like if you're actually on the red team or trying to get in? So, so this article is a little bit clickbaity just in the sense that, um, you know, you know, the things that they've got outlined below, right? Identifying and segmenting data, monitoring, you know, some of the other things that are listed in this article, those are things that you're going to find in, in a maturity index. Those are things that you're going to find in, you know, the NIST CSF framework, right? Um, There's nothing zero trusty about the things that are listed there into that article. And so first and foremost, I think this article is slightly miscategorized, um, you know, by calling it zero trust. If you look at like the zero trust model and architecture that's out there, it talks about um, almost, almost air gapping literally every system that you've got on your network. Um, n- not explicitly in those types of words, but if you look at some of the architectural concepts that it's got, that's very much what it talks about doing. Um, and, and, and that's where people get kind of overboard with, with, yeah, we should all move to zero trust. When you look at the things that are listed here in this article, I think everything that's listed here in this article um, um, is actually very doable. And there are things that every organization should do, even at, at the very fundamental levels, to, to create a good cybersecurity program. You know, identifying and segmented data, that's a data governance right. program, right? Every organization, large or small, don't care who you are, where you are, what your business is, or how you do business, should know what data is important to them, right? Is it your customers? Is it PII? Is it PHI? Is it PCI? Is it, is it intellectual property? Is it, is it vaccine data for COVID-19? Like, you should be able to know, you know, um, you know the, 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 I think there's a really cool meme out there that talks about, like, you know, the, the, the hacker's biggest uh, success was convincing the world that they've got nothing to steal. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> you know, when, when, when in reality, like if, if you, if you make money from a dollar to a million, right. You have something for a hacker to steal. It might be that $1. Think about what it is that you did to make that $1. But you know, if I, if I hack a million people and stole $1 from them, that's still a million dollars right. money. Right. Um, you know, I think everybody needs to understand their data. I think traffic flows, you know, that's, that's, I think that's, you know, you'll, you'll just, you'll discover that through, you know, any of the other security posture and architectural design reviews and things like that, that you should be doing as an organization. Um, You know, I think architecting the network is, is a, is, you know, I think that goes without saying, right. That's a security architecture organization in most organizations. Um, I think you're going to find that this is the hardest part of any building any security team from the scratch, because this is going to be purely based off of the sins of the company that you're walking into, the sins you're inheriting by by having to go into that organization for the first time. To to my point earlier, you know, have you done a hundred M&As? Like, are you bringing in a hundred companies over the last 50 to a hundred years that have never had to worry about cybersecurity? And so do you have to deal with now 50 to a hundred you know, different companies, cybersecurity stances and postures, and you have to try to bring them all into a consolidated right. model, right? And then people will say, well, we'll just leave them off on the side. Like if, if you if you acquired a company, just let that company sit over there. And sure, that sounds like a fantastic idea from a security practitioner's perspective. But one of the things that I would uh, encourage you to take a look at, right, is at the end of the day, if that company gets popped, 
it's still that company's name that's showing up on the breed trace. So you've got company A acquired company B, company B gets popped. This company up here, company A, that's the name that's going to show up on, on the breach right. report, right? That's the name, that's, that's whose 10K it's going to have to be on. Um, and, and the first place that they go look is the CISO of that company up there. And it's like, okay, CISO, what did you do to protect this M&A activity that happened down here? Um, you can't just say, well, we have a zero trust model, so we don't trust them. So we let them go off and do their own thing. That's not going to fly out of the street right. at all whatsoever. No, which makes sense. Uh, and the last one they were talking about was, yeah, automated and orchestrate. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think if you're, you know, now what's difficult about automation and orchestration, just generally speaking, right, is, is you have to have some good processes and I've done a lot of automation and orchestration. You have to have some good processes in place so that you know what it is you're automating and orchestrating. Um, I see organizations fall into this trap very frequently. They're like, Oh, I'm just going to design a kill switch, you know, for my network. They think about the WannaCry stuff and they're just like, Oh, I'm just going to do, do a kill switch. And it's like, if WannaCry ever happens again, I'm just going to press a button, press my big giant red button and cut off, you know, all of my internet and, and whatnot. And, and I think that that's fallacy, right? Because, you know, cyber moves, you know, just like that, um, you know, from the time you detect an incident to the time your playbook kicks in to the time you pick up the phone and call the CISO to make sure that you can press the red button to the time the CISO has to call the CEO, make sure they can press the red button to the time that call makes you drag down to you to press the red button. I'm, you know, WannaCry is taking out your entire manufacturing sites anyway. So that's the reason why you need automation and orchestration is because you, you have to be faster than the adversary. And unfortunately the adversary these days works in milliseconds. Right. No, true. Oh, that's awesome. Now, the last article I wanted to cover, which was kind of funny, and this was kind of the main topic of, you know, a little bit of the start is the psychology of human error, right? Could uh, could help business prevent security breaches. Now, we were talking about this, about, you know, the employee, the individual, you know, is still still widely talk, discussed about is that they're the, the easiest and most one, most easiest to compromise when it comes to security. Now, I was looking at this article, and they're saying several organizations are concerned about human error that causes accidental exposure of company critical data. Now, we've got you know cybersecurity awareness. We've got all that. Is there anything else we can do to help with the individual, right? the psychology in, in that area? Oh, I, I think that there is more that we can do. I think, I think you know security awareness is something you could unpack um, and make a hundred videos out of a hundred live streams. We could talk to a hundred people and get a hundred different opinions on security awareness. Um, I think it's hard to have this conversation, right? People are the front lines of your organization. People are um, your, your greatest asset when it comes to sensors on your network. Um, I've heard lots of extremes in my time in cybersecurity about, you know, where they want people to be from, you know, a cybersecurity perspective. I had a CISO one time who said that he wanted his secretary to be able to make changes to the firewall. And what he meant by that was if she saw a phishing email and she clicked that report phishing button, all of this automation would happen on the back end that would result in a firewall rule that would stop the phishing email from happening. Okay. Right. Um, and then I've seen, I think I, I reported on this two weeks ago where we've seen an uptick of organizations that were actually firing 
employees for for you know, falling victim to business email compromise, right? And so I, th I think I think we struggle with understanding what the right way is to handle you know employee psychology when it comes to to security awareness and phishing emails and things like that. Um, to the point that I don't think we know what the right answer is. Um, I think people are important, and I think we have to value you know what it is that that people see on the network you know day in and day out. I've heard you know fancy security awareness terms like uh, you know protect yourself, protect your company, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, I've seen people try to take that approach and I think it works, but then you have to spend a lot of time, you know, protecting, you know, teaching people how to protect themselves at home. And you might not necessarily explicitly see that return on investment measured in your, your security awareness training, because you have to teach them things about social media. You have to teach some things about their Gmail accounts. You have to teach something about, you know, you know, clicking on things at home and how to train their families, which may not necessarily directly relate one-to-one -one with what you would teach them in a corporate setting. So I, I think this is another one of those, those areas where we've not solved the problem of how to communicate with our people on top of the fact that I think every organization struggles with how to talk to their people uniquely, um, you know, in a way that helps them resonate with the company culture, the business culture, and, you know, the messages they're trying to convey. So it's it. And it's not a really solid answer to your question. So it's interesting. Right? When we look at the stats of this article and as they're going through, they're saying, this also reveals that younger employees are five times more likely to admit to errors, while 50% of employees aged between 18 and 30 years state that they made mistakes compared to 10% of workers aged, uh, aged over 51. So even them just reporting it, right, is the you know, stats are kind of skewed, right, of them saying, like, yeah, I clicked mm -hmm. on something. They're saying... I've been in order. I've been in organizations though, real quick, just to kind of pounce on that though. I've been in organizations where we've had to coach employees that it's okay to call the SOC to report phishing emails because they have been so scared of company culture that they thought they were going to get fired for reporting a phishing email. Yeah. And I think it, I, I, in my opinion is that companies have now scared people that if you know you do this, this is such a bad thing and don't kind of educate them. Yes, it's bad, but like you said, we need to know, we need to be aware of it, right? And then I think, like you said, they're kind of at that point where it's like, you know, if I do this, it's so bad for the company, like what's gonna happen? Cause I'm going through these annual or even quarterly cybersecurity awareness training. You know, if I don't pass the test, then I have to go through these, you know, video courses and then I have to pass it. So there's training, so it's a lot of weight on it. And I think, like you said, the company has also has to kind of give them a little bit of a training on reporting and why it's important reporting and what, how is it dealt? What's the process and what's kind of the outcome of it? You know, you, you, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking for all companies, but certain companies that don't, you know, lay people off and it's not a massive exposure or a compromise that yes, we want to hear. And yes, well, you have to go through training and all that, but it's not a fireball offense if it, as long as it was in this certain realm. Now, if again it was malicious or in intent or whatever, and there's a fireable offense, that's fine. But it should be laid out and should be drawn out. What is a fireable offense, and what can get you reprimanded to what extent, and then educate them on that. Yep. And I know, like this article is talking about, and then going back to this article, young employees are easy to fish. The study highlighted that on, that one in four employees, 25%, said that they have clicked on a phishing email at work. Men are twice uh, twice as likely likely as women to fail to fall for phishing scams with 30, 34% of, of male respondents stating that they have clicked on malicious links in a phishing email compared to 75% of, or 17% of women. So 
even that, like I'm, I'm, I'm questioning that like for myself, like 34% of male. And they talk about this later on is about the distraction, like people being distracted. Other finds include nearly 40, 45% of respondents cited distraction of the top reason for failing for uh, a phishing scam. Now, here's something that I was interested in with the psychology. I want to kind of bring that back to uh, males versus women, right? I find that in psychology, they talk about men are more focused. And when it comes to multitasking, a lot of times they get distracted that if something else is happening, they just kind of do something quickly and get back to the main area of focus. Where women, right, they say in this, I remember the study that they're saying that women can multitask. They can do like three, four things at a time because they're thinking about one thing. And I think it came back to, you know, uh, taking care of children and, and, and the family and kind of doing that. They're able to do a task, but also keep their ears open if there's a child around them to be able to make sure that they're safe and out of harm. So they are able to multitask in different areas and be able to still stay focused where the article and the, I remember they're talking about where men get distracted very easily, if, especially if they're they're rooted into an activity. If that activity, they're deep into it and something happens, they kind of do it quick and then they get back to their main activity. Now, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think here's the thing, though. I, I don't like the word distraction, right? That first bullet point right down there, right, where it talks about like 45% of respondents cited distraction as the top reason for failing a fishing exam. And, and maybe it's maybe it's old crotchety, you know, Neil, that's taking over here a little bit for this. Right. But I, I guess I look at that as, as, you know, we haven't created a culture of people who care enough to take the time to read an email. Right. You know, and, and I know there's statistics about there, especially around like C-suite folks, like the CEO, when he, when he gets an email, he's probably got three seconds to look at an email and decide whether it's an email he's got to open and, and either, you know, digest for information or click on or follow up or send to somebody else, you know, send to one of his delegates to do something. And I'm respectful of that as well, but we need, I think what I would take away from that is our challenge as cybersecurity professionals is we need to figure out more ways that in those three seconds, we create a way for that CEO to care for those three seconds enough to pay attention to the email that he's getting, right? Because it may be three seconds for the CEO, but then it may be 12 seconds for the CFO, then it may be a couple minutes for the CIO, and then maybe five minutes for the CISO. But if you think about some of these emails, um, you know, for, for especially for BEC and, and things like that, you know, you know, they're going down to like the accountant level. Those guys have 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, um, you know, to think about a phishing email. There's no reason, it has nothing to do with distraction. We're just not giving them incentive enough to care during that time period. Okay. But do you think it's changed now? Like they're talking about here, 57% of uh, remote workers admit they are more distracted when working from home now, right? So now they're not having that isolated work where you're in the office, you're in your cubicle, you're in your office, whatever that may be. Now you're at home, you know, significant other, husband, wife, significant others at home, right? The kids are running around, you know, the, in, in my opinion, the opportunity to be more distracted is there, especially if they have young children, you know, four and a below, five and below, who now mommy and daddy is home and now they this time to play versus, you know, they're normally at work. So I think, you know, for the home, home I'm life. probably, I'm probably not the, I'm probably not the best case for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I don't have any kids around the house and, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to accuse a, a parent of, of anything, you know, parentally challenging without firsthand knowledge. I, I, I 
am cynical still of that response, but I will preface that for anybody who's listening that I'm cynical, not having firsthand knowledge of, of how distracted life can be. I've talked to friends and peers and they talk about how hard it is during the pandemic to have to like homeschool and, um, you know, have to deal with their job at the, at the same time and things like that. And so I imagine it's pretty hard, but, but I guess I still take a little bit of a cynical approach to that, but I'm probably not, not the best for firsthand experience on that one. And then they say the last point here is that 43% of the fact, uh, the fact that it appears to have come from either a senior executive, uh, 41% or a well-known mm-hmm. brand. So, I mean, there's a lot of things when you look at kind of user error, right? And it's something that, you know, as I go through and I talk to people and have these kind of discussions is first and foremost is, you know, confirming that, you know, the, the sender, who is it coming from? Second all, clickbait like i mean we're talking about these articles i grab but clickbait stuff like i know uh when the pandemic was going on people were looking at the stats and what's happening in the industry they're also looking at you know uh protests are going on the elections going on in the states there's all these kind of clickbait activities that if you're trying to figure out what's going on you might click on something just because you want to keep up to date on current news current events because someone could say and i saw this you know just i think it was like two weeks ago oh donald trump was shot right and it was a clickbait kind of article, but it was it was spam, right? It was spam and potentially maybe even have malware. And I, I, I hovered over it, but I knew it was it was something along that line. I went to my local news just to see, can confirm, like, hey, is this really true? Sure enough, it wasn't. And these are the things that when people are not paying attention, are distracted, or you know, you say it's just you know not focusing on being focused on the email and taking the time with it. Would might might click on that, and then there could be you know an incident. It could be malware. It could be you know a keylogger or whatever that may be could be installed now, right? Could even be ransomware. Yeah. Yeah. I I like I said. I I think I think distraction is probably pretty fair. I I think we could I think we can help our I think we can help users be more informed when they decide to take however long it is that they need to to assess an email to make a decision. Right. Yeah, well, perfect, Neil. I mean, we covered a lot of information. Now, was there anything else that you want to talk about uh, before we end this uh, this episode? Absolutely not. As always, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to to sit down and talk shop with you. Well, Neil, I mean, again, I learned so much from you just having these conversations, talking about cybersecurity, what's going on in the industry, and having an expert point of view from yourself that you know, kind of eats, breathes, and lives the technology as well as kind of on the senior level. And it has both kind of views that you've been in the top level. You've been in those discussions. You've been in the, the trenches too. And you, you've worked with the, the technology. So to be able to have these conversations and share, I think is very valuable. Thanks for having me. So guys, that's today's Daily Cyber. Uh, Neil, thank you so much again for being on the podcast and sharing kind of just amazing value. Uh, if you guys are you know interested in you know subscribing to my channel, go to dailycyber.ca and check that out. Uh, and let me know if there's anything, any content or any information you'd like me to share. And I just want to remind you guys, just don't forget, software is hackable, being connected is vulnerable. I'll see you next Daily Cyber.